Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Cernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today's episode is the continuation and conclusion of a a discussion that I started with my uh, co-host, Dr. Christopher Sanilia, on the topic of gadolinium-based contrast agents. Uh, If you have not already listened to the uh, first episode, that is episode 27, where we discuss some of the uh, details and introduction and types of uh, gadolinium-based contrast agents. Today, we will continue that discussion. Welcome back to the podcast, Chris. Uh, let's uh, dive right into it. Um, can you tell us uh, about some of the specific patient conditions and specific patient considerations uh, that we should think about uh, prior to administering uh, gadolinium contrast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's take uh, pregnancy for our first condition. Um, so gadolinium is considered a class C drug by the FDA. And what that means is essentially there's no adequate, you know, well-controlled human clinical trials uh, performed, but there are animal reproductive studies that have shown um, adverse effects on the fetus. And so um, th- we have to be very cautious with gadolinium. It's a, it's a relative contraindication in, in pregnancy. And we think about this um, physiologically. When we give an intravenous uh, contrast or gadolinium contrast into um, the mother, that contrast, because it passes uh, the placenta barrier, will enter into the fetal circulation. And, and much like um, you know, an adult, that contrast will be filtered by the kidneys. However, with the fetus, um, when it is excreted, it will enter into the amniotic fluid and, and therefore can collect and be there for a prolonged period of time. And that would uh, theoretically um, cause a dissociation, um, which we talked about earlier, uh, increasing the potential uh, toxicity of um, gadolinium ions uh, in that fluid and obviously exposure directly to um, the developing fetus. So for this reason, you know, gadolinium should really uh, only be administered in pregnant patients uh, when we have a very specific selected uh, consideration where we have, um, you know, a potential benefit really overwhelmingly outweighing the risk. And this is where you need to have direct communication with the um, referring clinician and those who are well-versed with the patient's uh, clinical s- situation and everyone is on, on board with the, um, you know, the determination and is informed consent with the, with the, um, you know, the, uh, the mother. So, um, so this is a little bit of a, uh, you know, obviously a gray area when you have a relative risk, but we really need to be, um, understand that the gadolinium contrast, because of the way it goes from the mother to the fetus and ultimately excreted into the kidneys, it will collect in that amniotic fluid, and we have to be concerned about, again, toxicity here. So that's the first, uh, the first scenario you should be familiar with. The next one would be um, you know, gadolinium in women who are breastfeeding, and this one's a little bit, um, a little bit uh, more benign as far as our um, risks that we are concerned with. It's very similar uh, to um, ionated contrast because the amount of gadolinium um, that uh, is administered um, to the mother, um, a very small amount of that is actually excreted into uh, the breast milk. And only a 
tiny percentage of that, I think it's about 1%, will even be absorbed by the infant through the GI tract. So we're really getting a very, very small amount from a very, very small amount, um, you know, actually becoming uh, into the circulation of the uh, infant. And in, and the amount that we have there is actually much less than what we would give um, if we had to provide a uh, clinical study on on an infant. So uh, there's really no evidence that a tiny amount of absorbed gadolinium has any adverse effect uh, on a breastfeeding uh, infant. So there's no need to have uh, the mother stop breastfeeding after a gadolinium contrast study. Um, but much like when we advise uh, or have informed consent with uh, patients who have iodinated contrast, if the mother's concerned um, and, and does not want to do that, she certainly can stop breastfeeding for up to 24 hours after the study, uh, pump and discard or that melt I'm sorry, that milk that would uh, be produced at that time. So that's a, that's another option that we could provide for for our patient. So there's just a couple uh, of specific uh, scenarios. Sounds good, uh, Chris. And uh, you know that pregnant and breastfeeding uh, patients are uh, a set of patients that you know we that are not uncommon. We we deal with uh, at least on a weekly basis in, in typical clinical practice. A note to our listeners. Uh, that the uh, references that uh, Dr. Somnelia has graciously provided to us uh, are included in the show notes for uh, this episode. So please do check those out. Now, what about uh, one big topic uh, in gadolinium uh, contrast agent land? And that is the topic of NSF. Um, can you uh, discuss the specifics of NSF for us? Yeah, absolutely. Let's 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 talk about uh, two conditions that the the residents should be familiar with, um, and the first is um, NSF, which is uh, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, and this is something that uh, wasn't even described, uh, wasn't even on the radar for us when I was in residency. I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but you know this was in um, the early 2000. Uh, period. And at that time, gadolinium really uh, had a, a great safety track record, um, you know, from the late, you know, 80s when it was uh, first introduced into, you know, about mid-2000, uh, 2000, 2004, 2005. And at that point, we were actually uh, using gadolinium, uh, it was recommended as a substitute for iodinated-based uh, contrast agents for patients who had renal failure. So, you know, a typical uh, scenario would be someone who with uh, renal failure, um, and we needed to uh, have a uh, contrast uh, enhanced study, and in those cases, they were, we were uh, performing uh, gadolinium based uh, examination. In 2006, um, an association was made uh, related to the administration of gadolinium agents and the development of this uh, NSF or uh, nephrogenic um, systemic fibrosis in patients who had renal insufficiency. And um, essentially what would occur in these patients or what was um, you know, described was a, a very debilitating, potentially life-threatening disease, which was characterized by uh, progressive tissue fibrosis and resulted from you know, this deposition of fibroblasts and collagens, um, presumably related to um, uh, the gadolinium administration. Uh, they predominantly uh, involve the skin, but it could also involve other organs, um, you know, the, the heart, the lung, the liver, the, 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 the skeletal system. So um, it really could be very systemic in nature, as the, as the name implies. 
Um, you know, the exact pathophysiology uh, remains unknown, but uh, we, we have this understanding that it has something to do with the dissociation of gadolinium ions, right? We talked about that uh, throughout this uh, podcast. And uh, when those ions are kind of dissociated from the chel- chelating uh, ligand, um, they can become more toxic, right? The free ions we talked about being, you know, toxic to the human body. So patients that um, have renal failure, um, you know, that the gadolinium contrast is not well uh, excreted, and so it circulates longer and has longer time to dissociate. Uh, so most cases of NSF uh, reported in the literature um, had been associated with the administration of non-ionic uh, linear uh, gadolinium, and so um, those reports had been described, you know, uh, as a substantial incidence um, other than uh, non-linear agents as well, with ionic linear agents also being um, you know, identified. But the good news is since probably late uh, 2009, about 2010, there really have been no new cases of NSF reported. Um, this finding really reflects the use of, you know, more stable uh, gadolinium agents uh, and limiting the use of gadolinium in general in patients with renal uh, failure. So we've become, you know, much more aware of um, this condition and we're limiting first the use of gadolinium uh, in these you know, patients with risk factors, these patients with uh, renal failure, and also uh, when necessary, um, using more stable agents in general. So uh, the combination has uh, all but um, eliminated this, uh, you know, tragic uh, condition. Okay, now we are all uh, up to speed uh, on NSF and the most current thinking uh, about that entity. Now, what about um uh, another entity, which is uh, even more recently reported than NSF, and, and that is uh, something some of our uh, listeners maybe have heard of as well, which is uh, gadolinium deposition disease. Um, can you give us the kind of history and current thinking, uh, current thinking about uh, gadolinium deposition disease? Essentially, what we have here is that um, recently we've noted, we've always known, I should say, that um, you know gadolinium retention does occur in the skeleton, right? And um, this is greater in the linear rather than the macrocytic agents. Um, that's been known for for some time, but more recently, I say maybe in the last um, you know three to five years, um, investigators have noted that um, there is gadolinium retention in the brain, particularly in the uh, globus pallidus and dentate nucleus. Um, And so this occurs um, regardless of the patient's renal status, and it also occurs uh, proportional to the amount of gadolinium that's administered. And so, um, uh, like like I said, like the... um, Retention in bones, retention in the brain is greater with the linear than the uh, macrocytic agents. So again, um, you know, lending us to probably favor the macrocytic agents over the linear agents uh, to mitigate uh, retention of gadolinium. Now we don't really know what its clinical effect is. You know, we've there's been millions of uh, millions of uh, gadolinium contrast studies done, um, you know, globally, and there's no evidence of any uh, direct adverse uh, neurologic effect related to this accumulation. However, uh, there has been reports um, that describing constellations of symptoms that patients have um, with, you know, essentially normal uh, renal function. Um, and I think the, the first uh, description of this, I think, was 
um, in around 2015, 2016. It was about five, four, five, six years ago. Um, and um, the description was is mostly self-reporting. They have um, predominantly pain-like symptoms, um, neuropathic pain, um, you know, a glove and stocking distribution, a, a paresthesias, stiffness. Um, they can have burning sensations. They can have headaches, uh, fatigue, um, a clouded um, mentation. Um, you can have uh, distal extremity, your skin um, thickening, uh, discoloration, and pain. But um, it, this is a controversial um, issue. We still have uh, much to learn. Um, what I think we can kind of agree upon is um, the uh, idea that there is uh, deposition of gadolinium. You know, we've known that uh, in, in, in the skeleton for some time and, and certainly now are, are identifying this can occur in the brain. But, um, you know, what we need to determine is, you know, is there causation or is this just uh, a correlation? Um, you know, right now, you know, the ACR and the um, ASNR, or the Society of Neuroradiology, have made it, you know, a position uh, about the use of, of gadolinium. And they really, you know, ask that there are just basically multiple factors when we cons- consider uh, gadolinium and gadolinium use from, you know, the efficacy, you know, what the um, uh, rate of reactions are for the particular patient, which we talked about earlier, the propensity for this to deposit in the brain. Um, you know, uh, the, the FDA um, convened an advisory board, uh, again, I think it was back a few years ago, and they went through and concluded that there really is no um, evidence of a causal relationship between the symptoms and signs, which I just described, in patients with normal renal function and retention of gadolinium. But I think, you know, clearly we, we need to do you know, more research here. Um, I think uh, those that are interested, I, I think I provided a reference uh, of a nice article from uh, JACR. Uh, I think it was just from last year. And it describes, um, you know, gadolinium deposition disease and uh, risk management. And so it goes into a little a brief uh, background in the observations of, of gadolinium deposition and certainly talks about, you know, the medical um, scenario of, you know, deposition of gadolinium. Uh, but it also highlights some of the you know, medical legal um, challenges that, that, uh, it, that arises here. And, and I think, you know, not knowing all the answers at this moment, I think we just do our best, you know, to uh, first do no harm. And, and when we can, we can try to choose agents um, that would, um, in principle or in theory, you know, have uh, a greater affinity and less likelihood for um, ionization and, and therefore, you know, less risk for um, toxic effects and deposition within the body. And so um, I know there was uh, in another article, I think I also put in that um, show notes, there was about the description of more stable macrocyclic, macrocyclic um, gadolinium agents like Prohance and Dodoram and how they're not associated with substantial MR imaging changes or even brain uh, deposition, I think, um, was the, the comment about cases with Dotoram. So um, just supporting this idea of gadolinium accumulation you know, varying, um, you know, depending on uh, the stability of the agent used. So not all gadolinium agents are are the same. And um, I hope that kind of gave an overview of uh, kind of some of the you know, safety issues we need to be concerned about with uh, contrast in, uh, you know, MRI. Well, thank you very much, Chris, again, uh, for taking us uh, on a tour through the uh, land of gadolinium contrast agents and contrast media. 
over the last two episodes. Uh, that was fantastic. I hope all of our listeners uh, learned something from the last two episodes. Uh, I certainly did. did. Uh, and please, again, refer to the uh, um, literature that and references that Dr. Sonulia has graciously provided for us, which are attached in the show notes. And uh, we will see you next time. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at www.umassmed.edu backslash radiology. Thank you to our colleagues Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time.